Welcome to Murder Most Foul, a podcast devoted to exploring famous murder cases of our time. Some solved, some unsolved, but all fascinating and guaranteed to raise the hairs on the back of your neck. I'm your host, Jim Solonowski. Today's episode... The Boy in the Box. The Philadelphia police discovered a boy wrapped in a blanket in the woods in the Fox Chase neighborhood of Philadelphia. Um, my memory is that it, he was in a bassinet box, and I believe they were able to trace that back to the retailer, uh, who I, I believe was J.C. Penney. I mean, they, they did everything they could in order to trace the origin of all of the pieces of evidence that they found at that crime scene, um, but to this day, still don't know who he is. He is the unknown child. America's unknown child is how his grave is marked, and you go over to the to the cemetery, the Ivy Hill Cemetery, a very famous cemetery in Philadelphia where he's buried. You look at his tombstone and it is uh, littered with toys and flowers. And there is a there is a real connection to this case, certainly in the city of Philadelphia, but even across the country where people are uh, not only intrigued by what happened, but but seem to be moved by who this child was. and the fact that his identity is lost and who cared for him and who didn't and the mystery and, and the the compassion that I think a lot of people have for this case um, is palpable, especially when you visit his, his, his resting place. Mitch Blocker reporter for NBC10 in Philadelphia, leads us off on our exploration of this coldest of cases. He has covered the story in the most recent time. Another source of comprehensive information is Jim Hoffman and his book, The Boy in the Box, America's Unknown Child. Jim takes us to the very beginning of the case, when the body of the boy was discovered in an empty field outside Philadelphia. At least three people passed by the dump site over two days before the police were finally notified. And uh, it would be a Friday, November 22nd, 1957, probably around 8 in the morning. This guy's driving to work. He's heading south. Um, Susquehanna Road runs east-west, and... um, I'm trying to remember the name of the street. I, I Forgive me, it's uh, Vereen or something. Going south, he's heading south. He looks to his right. He, he sees, uh, he describes an w- older woman and uh, a young boy, maybe 14. They have an open trunk. Now, at the time, Susquehanna Road was a gravel road. It was a dump site. I live in the high desert of California. People dump stuff left around. I totally get that. And he thought they're dumping trash. And he yelled something to the effect, uh, uh, dumping trashes against the law, something like that. Um, he said they kind of nodded and then he just drove off. 
And um, that was November 22nd, a Friday, about 8 in the morning. The next day, John Porosnik, he lived about a quarter mile or so from the dump site where the boy's body was found. And um, he was, it was a Saturday about, I don't know, 2 in the afternoon or so, dribbling or, or walking to uh, the, the church. He wanted to play basketball. And um, he saw the box, went up to the box, saw the boy, freaked out, ran home, didn't tell anybody. Then on Monday the 25th, um, um, a guy by the name of Bononis was, um, ran into this box and freaked out, went home. He was a school student at LaSalle College and uh, didn't say anything. I don't blame him. I, I mean, what do you, I mean, I would have been freaked out. <clears throat> And um, he had a uh, he had heard a report that a girl was a little girl was missing from New York, and he, and then he started feeling guilty. And so he he asked some of the uh, uh, the officials at LaSalle, "What should I do?" And then he finally went to his priest, and his priest said, "Son, you got to go tell the police." So the next day he did, and uh, at around ten fifteen a.m., Elmer Palmer, who I interviewed at the 2007 memorial uh, said he was told it looks like a doll and probably a doll check it out and he did and of course it wasn't and then that night around 10 p.m the, the boy was autopsied and uh by chance and uh, a guy by the name of uh, remington bristow they called him rem he was an investigator for the ME, the medical examiner's office in Philadelphia. By chance, he got the use that night, the unknowns. So he was assigned the case. And he thought, ah, oh, this will be solved by Monday. We'll know who this kid is. And of course, we don't. He was in a box, a JCPenney box. Uh, and he was naked. He had this little, like, Indian-style blanket, they called it, uh, laid over his, uh, his body. And that was it. Um, he had been, his hair had been freshly cut. He still had hair follicles on his body as if he had been in a bath. And his nails were cut. And it's kind of strange, you know, if you're going to kill someone, just dump the body. And so they, they said he had some, um, if you took, like, your hand and put it on your forehead with force, uh, he had some bruising along his forehead on either side, and then he had blunt force trauma, correct. He also was malnourished. Um, a guy by the name of William Grogman, he was known as a bone doctor. Uh, he was out of, um, I don't know if it was Temple or University of uh, Pennsylvania, but um, he, um, I think it was University of Pennsylvania. He basically said this kid was so uh, physically malnourished and undeveloped he, he probably was four to six years old, but he really had the body and weight of like a three-year-old three or something like that. It was, it was kind of sad, really. Authorities printed up flyers of the boy and flooded stores, restaurants, and even put a copy in electric bills of every house in the Philadelphia area. They chose not to use a sketch, but because of the good condition of the body, dressed him up, and posed him in a chair for the photo on the flyer. They went to such great lengths to try to solve this case. The investigators, the police department, the city, uh, private individuals, yeah, they even dressed him up, 
this discovery. I, they used clothes from a detective's child who was a similar age, and they dressed him up to kind of jog people's memories. They laid him on like a chair or set him in a chair. And of course he was dead, but it, it gave the impression someone might see and go, okay, yeah, I remember that kid. Because when you look at a naked body, that's not the same effect. Despite the best intentions of the authorities, the boy in the box remained unidentified, which made it difficult, if not impossible, to solve the mystery of his death. Over the first few decades, there were few solid leads. Most of the generated tips came from other jurisdictions around the nation trying to solve their own missing child cases. All leads were checked out, but none matched the known details of the boy in the box. The police even turned to the VDOC Society, a renowned group of retired forensic experts that meet in Philadelphia and aid in solving cold murder cases. In 1960, one of the lead detectives enlisted the help of a psychic to look for a connection between the boy and nearby residences near the crime scene. One of the promising leads in the 80s was a rather questionable foster home in the area run by Arthur Nicoletti and his wife. Mr. Nicoletti refused to take a lie detector test and the lead, like hundreds of others, produced no fruit. In February of 2000, 43 years after the death of America's unknown child, the police get a break. A woman from Cincinnati, simply known as M., requests that her psychiatrist contact the Philly PD. She has a story to tell. M is the foster sister. I believe M was the one that the un unidentified motorist saw on Susquehanna Road. Uh, and, uh, but she looked like a boy because she was a tomboy. And that's why he said it looked like a boy, but she was with her mother and they were, they were dumping the body. But I believe her mom bought the boy, as she described, and so he was killed in Lower Marion, which she was a librarian at the Lower Marion High School. Her, her husband, who was involved in this craziness, was a science teacher at Lower Marion. Again, I'm a teacher, so this creeps me out. And uh, M talked about the sexual abuse and how the boy was blocked for sexual abuse. Her mom was, was uh, deviant evil, her word, evil. Joe McGillan, Bill Kelly, Tom Augustine uh, drove because I think it was uh, Bill was afraid of flying, um, and they drove to Cincinnati and met her. And she actually lived nearby in another state, but uh, they they interviewed her over a couple of of um, over a couple of days, if I'm not mistaken. And um, Bill and Joe totally believed her. Tom was a little bit hesitant, but you know, it's interesting because Bill and Joe, they're now, they've now passed on. They are, they're, they were older and Tom is younger. Tom's probably, you know, 70 around there, 70, something like that. But, um, I, he's, he's the kid. And he said, you know, he's used the phrase, I don't believe her until it's verified, you know, whereas Bill and Joe, they believed her and they tried to verify and they did to a certain degree. They did verify. They found her, 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 um, 
her uh, college roommate who verified she had, you know, she described, you know, the boy and stuff like that. I wanted to get a first-hand account of the police interview of M, so I contacted retired Philadelphia detective Tom Augustine, the kid, for his assessment of the credibility of this possible witness to the murder of the boy in the box. We go out to uh, Bill Kelly, and wasn't Sammy? We couldn't take Sammy with us. Sammy was Sammy's a great human being. A little bit rough on the edges. Bill and Joe, Joe wouldn't, Joe wouldn't fly. We had to drive out to Illinois, stayed overnight, met this woman, and we bought flowers for her. We took flowers in, the whole works. Treated her like as if she was your daughter. She, she, she probably could be the answer. But when she came in, you looked at her, big woman. And she looked like she walked out of, we had a hospital in Philadelphia called the Byberry State Hospital. It was a major, and I remember seeing people there from when I was a kid going up Roosevelt Boulevard. She looked like just one of them. She had the page boy hair. She worked for some major pharmaceutical, uh, educated, but they they wanted to believe her. I said, guys, there's too many inconsistencies. She read everything that she could ever find. She identified with this little boy for some reason. And she, everything that she could get her hands on, she read. And she's putting herself right in the middle of this. Why is that? I don't know. But they're saying, well, you know, it could be, guys, we're not going to just say, oh, yeah, we solved that case. She's not the one that did it. You guys know, and I know, they wouldn't say anything. I'm as sure that she wasn't the killer as I'm as sure that I wasn't the killer. All right? Let me ask you a question about your interview with her. <clears throat> did she, like I said, she, you know, read stuff that was out in the public. Did she have, can you remember, did she have any um, detail that only the police and the killer would have? No. Um, there's no one that wanted to solve that case more than me. I mean, that was my life. Jim Hoffman was not ready to dismiss M and her story. But even if he believed M, he still could not trace the boy back to where M's mother purchased him. Like the police at the onset of the investigation, Jim did not consider Arthur Nicoletti's foster home a reasonable possibility. In 2012, he was contacted via Facebook by a man named Rut Rutledge, who felt he had the elusive answer. It was like 10.30 at night, and I see this message from Rut Rutledge. It's a pseudonym, and he lives in Philadelphia. He says, hey, 
are you the author of the boy in a box? I'd like to talk to you, blah, blah, blah. So we started communicating. I've never talked to Rudd. That's not his real name. I've never talked to him on the phone. Never met him. Don't know his real name. And he started telling me it took him a while to get comfortable with me for us to develop a rapport. And he started, I'm going to say around early December, he said, okay, well, here's what happened. And he basically described how his family rented out this house, this townhome, because it is a connected home. I call it a townhome uh, to this couple. And in February, at the time the boy's body was discovered, they abruptly left this weird couple. Um, what does weird mean? They were just, I don't know, strange. But anyways, um, he, his mom and dad, especially his mother, always believed they had something to do with the boy. One of the things, and there's, it's all in the book, but one of the pieces of evidence was when they went in after the people left, there were diapers there. There were, uh, the, the bathtub had water and blood in it. And so anyways, he shares this with me. And, and I thought, wow, this could be possibly, because I believe M's story. I believe he was killed at M's house in Lower Marion. And this house was, it was near, closer to the dump site. And I thought, okay, maybe this is where they bought the boy from. Because this guy, the family, this guy was seedy. Okay. And so um, what we did is we, he and I, I put together all his information he gave me, and I compared it to the known facts. Soon, Jim and Rutt are joined by Lou Romano, another author, as they try to trace the relatives of the renters of Rutt's house. In 1998, the boy in the box's body was exhumed and DNA was extracted from a tooth. Now the team only needed someone for a DNA comparison. We decided to pursue this, uh, this guy who rented Rutt's house because Rutt had done Rutt had done a magnificent job of, in a discreet way, uh, inter, uh, investigating the, this family, and he found that the the uh, son, the, the the son of this this couple that lived in the house, uh, he lives now in Memphis. Um, he he found out his name and all the stuff, and then Lou, who's a great salesman himself, way better than I am probably. Uh, but anyways, he, um, he went and he met with this guy and his son and got DNA. And interestingly, he brought it back and he followed all the protocols. He was told what to do. It was all his money, his expenses, his time comes back. Uh, he mails the results to the Philadelphia police department and, uh, it quote unquote got lost. And, uh, eventually they, if I understand it correctly, they sent their own representative to this guy and uh, got their own DNA, and it, quote, unquote, did not match. Photographs. And we used the photographs we had of the boy's body, the drawing that was made, a two-life drawing, and then the pictures of family members. That's where Rutt really went over and beyond of this family. And it's kind of interesting because we, um, I, t I took 
some of these photos. <clears throat> and there was one in particular, and it's in, you can Google uh, Mitch Blocker, you know, re-examining the boy in a box case or something, because they posted an interview of, of Lou and myself and some other individuals. On March 3rd, 2016, NBC10 Philadelphia aired Mitch Blocker's powerful piece entitled New Theory in Decades-Old Boy-in-the-Box Cold Case. His grave reads America's unknown child, unknown but not forgotten. All these toys are basically new from Christmas. Dave Drysdale is the second generation to care for the boy's grave at the Ivy Hill Cemetery. I remember my uh, father saying, we'll take care of him. Those who say it could soon erase the word unknown. You think you've solved the case? I think I did. It makes the most sense when you look at all the facts. Two authors, Jim Hoffman near Los Angeles, Lou Romano outside New York, say they've traced the boy's family to Memphis, Tennessee. The only way I'm going to find out, Mitch, is if this, if this is a child, is the DNA evidence, scientific evidence. While researching separate books, they paired two tips together. One from a woman claiming her mother bought and killed the boy. The other from a Philadelphia man claiming his family rented a home to a man who sold his son. They took a DNA sample from who they believe to be the boy's brother. We're not showing you his face or releasing his name because he was not interested in being a part of this story. We can show you this picture. The authors believe this is the unknown boy's father. We asked Philadelphia's former assistant medical examiner and current Montgomery County Deputy Medical Examiner Greg McDonald to look at the pictures of the boy, his potential brother and father. There are some similarities to these pictures, um, enough similarity that I think is worthy of further investigation through some more specific laboratory tests. McDonald was working in the Philadelphia Forensic Lab in 1998 when the boy's remains were brought in and DNA extracted. The upper portion of uh, the ear that we call the helix is a little protuberant or pushes out. He saw something similar in his potential brother. His right ear points out in a similar way. So, so that is a potential uh, connection, genetic connection. McDonald showed us common traits among all three photographs. Some similarities in the facial structure, um, even the, the nose itself on uh, this, this young boy, the end of it's a little bit bulbous. Um, you can see a similar uh, feature present on his uh, potential uh, brother as well. Toys and candy left at his grave prove the boy in the box is not forgotten, especially for those who see him every day. I hope that one day uh, there'll be a name on that stuff. Although it appears that the Memphis connection may be a dead end to find living relatives of the boy, that does not mean M's story is not true. In addition, other labs could retest the DNA from the boy and the Memphis connection. Jim and Lou are hoping that might be the case someday. But retired detective Tom Augenstein is putting his money on Arthur Nicoletti. You prick. You prick. He was beaten to death, cleaned him, washed him, cut his hair, cut his fingernails, all identifiers, no one would have his prints. Put him in a box with an Indian blanket that they had. That was his burial. Uh, did he, did, 
can I say, oh, I'm 100% sure it's Arthur Nicoletti. Now I'll tell you, I believe it was Arthur Nicoletti. Was it? I can't prove it. Today, I would have went at him harder. Today, if I had him, I would still be in his house. He would tell me what happened. I, you had to handle this guy because he was this far from throwing us out of his house. Did not want us there. He lived with us. This, is, this was probably um, maybe 1990, maybe, when we went and spoke to him. He's been living with us since 1957. And when you go to homicide and you're a suspect, it's not a good experience. It's not a good experience. Do I believe it was Arthur Nicoletti? Oh, for sure. Can I prove it? Oh, positively not. Will we ever find out who killed the boy in a box? Unless you can get that DNA match from somewhere, somehow. Problem is we have a lot of DNA from prisoners and so on and so on. Unless he had a brother or a sister, or maybe his mother, they're gone. You may find out who the kid was through DNA at some point, but who dumped him, why they dumped him, all day. There is one final aspect of this case that I'd like to mention. In researching his book, Jim Hoffman had much of the cold case files loaned to him by the Philly PD. But the boxes and boxes of invaluable information were not the only thing he brought into his home. I call up Tom, Doc, Detective August. He's like, I'll send you the, the case files. I'm like, what? <laughs> you know, okay. And it had, you got it. okay, if you study this stuff, you know, if you believe this stuff, the hauntings and stuff, you know, I had the original autopsy photos, piece of the original blanket he was found with, photos of M and her family, um, original autopsy and so on and so forth. Those are, if you believe this stuff, they're like transmitters of spiritual energy. And so I got the files around October, I think it was early December. I came home from work one day, and I, I won't say exactly how my wife said it, but Debbie said, get this blank out of my house. It's causing spiritual warfare, something to that effect. So I put it in the garage, and essentially, I'll say it in a nutshell, um, when I was in Philadelphia that, that, that during those couple of days of the 50th anniversary, the mor that morning, around 3.30 in the morning, California time, this would have been 6.30 Philadelphia time, they heard my wife and the girls, my two girls, heard a shriek, a child shrieking. And... They were so scared. They, the kids ran into my wife's uh, room and they jumped on the bed. And Debbie said she heard it too. And that would have been the 50th anniversary of the death of the child. Mind you, it was 6.30. I'm not sure when the boy died, but she did, M did say he shrieked. That was, a, that was like one of the few times she heard anything come out of him when his head was slammed against the floor by the mother 
he sh let out a shriek. Was that the boy? I don't know, but I would bet it was. So my that really startled them. And we had a bunch of poltergeist activity as well. Um, I can remember sitting at the table, and we literally, we were talking about the boys, the case. And um, my wife said something to the fact she's an evil witch. And we heard a loud crash and a huge picture in our bedroom uh, fell off the floor, off the wall, okay, a 90 degree turn and landed in the hallway. That's not a normal, you know. Throughout our interview, Jim has openly admitted he is obsessed with the boy in the box, America's unknown child. And he is not the only one. But why? What keeps this case in the public's consciousness for over six decades? This is human. And any parent, any brother, any, 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 anyone who has a relationship with with a child can appreciate the tragedy of this. And, you know, I think we all have a place in our heart that wants to see justice for him. Uh, and, and at this point, is that going to be a criminal case? No, but it's going to be a period on the end of this story. And I think that is what so many Americans desire. And that's certainly why in Philadelphia, we, continue to talk about this. We continue to ask about it because he is a representation of a lot of unknown children, of a lot of unknown cold cases. But I think it's more than that. I think it's more than just scratching the itch of curiosity. I think it is, this could have been, this could have been somebody like, like my brother, like my son, like my grandson. It's relatable. And, it, and the tragedy is not lost on people because of that relatability. When I was 10 years old, February of 57, I go over to the local grocery store, the food check, and I look over at the window, and here's this poster. Unknown boy. What? And I read it, I'm looking, oh my God. Well, see, that little boy was like my brother because I knew about the beatings. I knew what my father did to my brother. It was horrible. I knew what he did to me up to that point. Uh, and I, I can just say, this boy is my brother. He's me. He's part of me. That could have been me. That boy in that poster could have been me. So why did I take this case to heart? For what I went through as a child. And I truly believe that that there, the next day could have been me. And that's, that's how I feel. I want to know what is his name, what happened to him. And I don't want to know when I go through the pearly gates, God willing. I want to know now. I guess I'm greedy. I just want to know now. I can tell you this, I, I, when I went there in 2007, it was really kind of eerie because I was 
I got there early. It was, um, I think it started at 10 o'clock, the ceremony, 2007, February 26, 2007. I got there early and there was no one there, kind of eerie, quiet. I walked up to the headstone. I, I wish I could hug the kid. I didn't know what to, you know, I, it was a weird kind of vibe. And I said, you know what, the hell with it. So I bent down a couple times and I kissed the headstone and I just said, I'm so glad to meet you. And I'm, I'm sorry, I've done the best I can. I'm going to keep trying. I want to know what really happened. Nearly 700,000 children are abused in the United States each year. Five are killed each day. The boy in the box was one such child. Could he have been saved? Did anyone, friend, family, or neighbor, notice something that could have led to him being rescued from his horrible fate? These are questions we need to ask ourselves. If you take anything away from this story, I hope it is that fact. I want to thank my guests, author Jim Hoffman, his book, The Boy in the Box, America's Unknown Child, which can be found online or at your local bookstore. Retired Philadelphia detective Tom Augustine and Philadelphia producer and reporter Mitch Blocker. Please visit my website, Murder Most Foul, all one word, no caps, no spaces, and leave a comment for me or my guests via my email. Thanks for listening.